soak in. That was good. It's been a privilege to be here again this year. This is my eighth time at Sharon Camp as a speaker. And it has been a genuine joy to be a part of this camp and to share the platform or the floor with Brother Gary Bond. By the way, he's Dr. Gary Bond now. And uh, he received a doctorate from his uh, alma mater. This last year, and we are so proud of him for all the work that he's done in evangelism. And so he is Dr. Gary Bond. Always a pleasure to work with Brian Arner, and you understand why. And uh, it's been a joy to be with Penny as well. She makes you look so good. And uh, I thank you for reserving my corner room. I enjoy staying in that room up there in the dorm. And uh, the food, of course, that Melody and, and Lynette and her crew have provided for me is just exceptional for camp meeting, and I appreciate it so very, very much. Uh, I'll take down my product table tonight. If you're interested, it's there for your consideration. But thank you for everything, for praying and uh, for believing in me, Dan, for your confidence in me. Thank you so much. And for the board's call for me to come back again. I hope if the Lord tarries, we can do it again sometime in the future. Judges chapter 3, if you have your Bibles. Judges chapter 3, verse 31. <clears throat> Judges chapter 3, verse 31. One simple verse of Scripture for your consideration tonight. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Well, Father, it has been an incredible week. You have met with us in every gathering, every service. I thank you for the work that's gone on over there in the worship center with the young people and Brian. Thank you for this wonderful young man who has led the young people and spoken the word to them. For the teen workers that's been there and helped out. And I thank you for these wonderful young people. They've been so good and so respectful all week long, and I thank you for that. I thank you, Father, for the services and the songs and the groups that have come and the messages that we've heard and been privileged to share. I thank you for everything that's gone on. But we're not here just to perform, and we're not here just to uh, preach just another sermon. We want to see people's lives changed. We want our lives to be different when we walk off this grounds in just a few hours. So, Father, tonight I pray that you would help me to share this message so that everyone here might benefit from it. 
I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have discovered that it's not difficult to exercise faith when everything is going well. When everything is falling into place in my life, when all the bills have been paid and my relationships are in place, when everything is just the way I want it to be, it's not difficult to exercise faith when the circumstances are favorable. But it takes a special kind of person to exercise faith in God when the circumstances are not favorable. The Bible is full of stories about men and women who were willing to exercise faith when things were not going well. I grew up in an incredible Christian environment. As many of you know, my dad was a great evangelist. But I think the backbone of our family was my mother. Because she knew the value of prayer and she knew the value of the Word of God. And every night when my dad was off holding a revival meeting somewhere or in a camp meeting, my mother was very faithful to gather the five Loman siblings around her knee every night and she would read the Word of God to us. And if she was not reading from the Bible, she was reading from one of the editions or one of the volumes or of the Bible story collection that we had in our home. It was placed on a shelf just above my dad's recliner. And every once in a while, my mother, instead of opening the Bible, she would reach up and she would grab a volume of one of those Bible story books and she would read the Bible story to us. And then she would show us the beautifully illustrated pictures of that story. And one of my favorite stories that I remember my mother reading to us was that very familiar Old Testament event of the Red Sea crossing. And we know that story, don't we? We know how the children of Israel, they had been in Egyptian bondage for 400 years years and now God has brought Moses from the backside of a desert and Moses after a series of unbelievable plagues the Pharaoh has allowed the people of Israel under the leadership of Moses to be led out of Egyptian bondage and they come to their first great obstacle the Red Sea there it is before them there is no way to get to the other side and by the time they've arrived there Pharaoh has changed his mind and he is fast approaching from the rear he wants to recapture them take them back because he realized that his workforce had never now vacated Egypt and he wants them back and so there they stand on the banks of the Red Sea and they begin to murmur and complain against Moses and you will discover if you study their history that they were very good at murmuring and complaining and there they stood on the banks of the Red Sea and they cried out to Moses why have you brought us out here to die in the desert were there not enough graves in Egypt that we should die here in the desert uh, Pharaoh is fast approaching and so God speaks to Moses and Moses raises his hand he has a rod stretches it out over the Red Sea and the waters of the Red Sea begin to churn and there appears before the children of Israel a path so that they can cross through the Red Sea to the other side when my mother would read that story to me I had this vision in my mind of a path about as wide as the aisle of this tabernacle but if the path was uh, about as wide as the aisle in this tabernacle the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 12 verse 37 that there were 600,000 Israelite men 
Add to that the women and the children. Add to that all of the livestock that they had with them. And I'm sure that you would have at least a million people to get through the Red Sea. And by the way, the Bible says they crossed through the Red Sea in the span of one night. If the path was as wide as the aisle in this tabernacle and they went through the Red Sea double file, the line would have been 800 miles long. It would have required 35 days to get from one side to the other. So in order to pass through the Red Sea in the span of one night, the path had to be three miles wide. And they would have had to have crossed through the Red Sea 5,000 abreast across in order to get through in the span of one night. If that's how wide it had to be, that's how wide it was. Because God is able to do the incredible. He is able to do the miraculous, the supernatural on behalf of His people. I love a story that I heard, and perhaps you've heard the story as well, of a dear saint of God who every time she heard the story of the Red Sea crossing, she would get blessed. You know that word, don't you? She would get blessed. She would get up out of her seat and she would begin to walk the aisle of her church waving her handkerchief and praising God. And one Sunday morning, her pastor was preaching and while he did not preach on the story of the Red Sea crossing, he alluded, alluded to it in his message and something triggered in her spirit and she got up from where she was sitting in the sanctuary and she began to walk up and down the aisles of the church praising the Lord for His delivering power. Well, the pastor just stopped until she had finished and when she finished, she sat down and he continued his sermon. Well, after the service was over, a young man who had been reared in that church, who had been off to college now, walks up to this little saint of God and says, Ma'am, with all due respect, I've seen you do what you did this morning over and over again as I was growing up in this church. Every time you heard the story of the Red Sea crossing, you would get blessed and you would shout up and down the aisles. And he said, I want you to know I've been off to college. And I have discovered that the water where they were supposed to have crossed through the Red Sea at that time of the year, it was only three inches deep. Well, she got blessed again and began to run up and down the aisles of the church. And he got her stopped and said, wait a minute. I just took the wind out of your proverbial Christ, uh, spiritual sails. Why did you get blessed? She said, I got blessed because my God can drown an army of Egyptians in just three inches of water. That's why I got blessed. God is able to do the mighty, the miraculous, in spite of the circumstances. Somebody said that faith steps blindly into the empty void and always finds the solid rock Christ Jesus. There are many warriors of the faith that we could talk about tonight. Oh, we could talk more about Moses because he was mightily used of God. We could talk about Joshua who led the children of Israel into the promised land. We could talk about Elijah who prayed down fire from heaven on the side of Mount Carmel. 
We could pray or we could preach and talk about the Apostle Paul and the great exploits of this great man of God. But my message tonight is not about any of these other notables of the Old and New Testament. No, my sermon tonight is about a simple man, a common man. As a matter of fact, he was a farmer. His name was Shamgar and his story is found in one verse of Scripture. His name is only mentioned twice in the Bible. He is not even mentioned in the genealogies of the people of Israel. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goat. Here is the circumstance facing Shamgar. The Philistines had captured Israel. And they had subjugated all the farmers and all of the blacksmiths so that they could not manufacture any weapons to do battle against their enemy, the Philistines. These Philistines would come in just unannounced and they would pillage and they would plunder the land and the homes of the Israelite people. Uh, they would burn their houses to the ground. They would rape their women. Uh, and they would grab suckling babies and toss them into the air and catch them on the tips of their swords and their spears. It was a horrible time in the life of the people of Israel. Despair had taken hold of every woman, boy, and child in all of Israel. They laughed seldom. They wept often. There was a dark and ominous cloud that had settled down upon the people of Israel because it appeared that these godless Philistines had the upper hand. They were continually over and over day after day. They were tyrannizing the people of Israel. But what was worse? The people of Israel had become content with it. They'd become satisfied with being defeated. They'd lost their fight. They didn't really care anymore if they could worship their God. They'd lost their willingness to stand against their godless enemies, the Philistines. Hear me tonight, my friend, it's bad enough to be defeated by the enemy. But what is worse is becoming content with being defeated by the enemy. And I'm glad that I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God that the people of God don't have to be defeated by the enemy. We don't have to take a backseat to Satan or anything that he would try to do in our lives. I believe that we can live victoriously through faith in Jesus Christ. We've heard that over and over again throughout this camp meeting, uh, that you can live in victory in spite of the circumstances that may surround you day after day. You say, well, Lane, that's pretty good preaching. That's pretty good preacher talk. But you don't know what I've got to go back to. You don't know what I have to face on the job Monday. You don't know what's going on in my family. Easy enough, Lane, for you to stand up there and say that we can live victoriously in spite of the circumstances. And you're right. I don't know what you're going to have to face. I know what I'm going to get to face when I leave here. I get to go home to a safe environment, to a loving wife. 
and take some time off and enjoy my time at my home. I, I know what I've got to look forward to, but I don't know what you're going to have to face. But I say it with the authority of the Word of God and with sincerity, not meaning to just sound like a preacher tonight. You can go back to wherever you've got to go, face whatever you've got to face, and you can, with the power of the Holy Spirit operating in your life, you can live in victory no matter what you may face when you go back to where you're going. You say, well, Lane, how? How? Shamgar, I think, gives us the how. Because when I look at this one verse of Scripture, I see a couple of things. They just leap off the page at me. And when I read this verse, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goat, he saved Israel. The first thing that leaps off the page at me is that he was possessed of a divine discontentment. Now you will agree with me tonight when I say that we live in a world of discontentment. People are always trying to find something to answer that emptiness inside of them. I read a statistic some years ago that said a person who has to go to work every day and clock in when they go to work, the thing they look most forward to doing at the end of that day is clocking out. They just seem to go through the regimen of going to work and then they go and they try to find something that will substitute for that emptiness inside of them. And you don't have to go far to find that. Go to all of the amusement parks and, and go to all the places that offer entertainment and activities and you see people paying thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to feed that emptiness inside of them. There is a discontentment in our world today, but that's not the kind of discontentment that Shamgar had. He had a divine discontentment and there is a difference. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, he said, I'm not satisfied with what's going on in the life of Israel. I had a pastor come up to me one day when I was holding a revival meeting, and he said, Lane, you travel a lot, and, and you meet a lot of pastors, and engage with a lot of people in a lot of churches. He said, what would you say is the greatest need in our churches today? And if asked that question tonight, I'd probably respond with the same answer that I gave to him. The greatest need in our churches today is a hunger for God. We don't hunger for God like we used to. And I get the feeling when I read this that Shamgar is saying, I miss the presence and power of God. There was a divine discontentment about his actions. You see, we will never have a fresh witness of the Holy Spirit as long as we're content to live without it. As long as we're content just to go to church and sing our songs and go through the routines of the worship that we do on Sunday morning and have no fresh word from God, then we'll get satisfied with that and we'll just go through the motions of being a Christian. You see, we've got to have our hearts get hungry for the things of God. The Bible says, In the day that thou shalt seek me with all thine heart, thou shalt sure find me. A sinner will never get saved as long as they think that that's the only way to live. 
They've got to be able to know their need and be willing to allow God to do something for them. A saved person will never be sanctified, will never be filled with the Spirit as long as they're content to, as we heard last night and we've heard throughout this camp, just punch their ticket for heaven and not realize that there's more to serving God than just having their sins forgiven, which is great within itself, but there is so much more. The average church attendance will, a church attender will never rise above that level of spiritual mediocrity as long as they're satisfied just to rock along where they are. We've got to get hungry. I think Shemgar was hungry for a move of God. He wanted to worship his God again. I had the great privilege of conducting revival meetings in the wonderful Richmond Southside Church of the Nazarene in Richmond, Virginia, many years ago. Their pastor at that time was Reverend Charles Thompson, and he was from North Carolina, and he had had my dad at his church in North Carolina many, many times. And now he's pastoring this church, and this church has grown into one of the stronger churches of our denomination there in the state of Virginia. And he was kind enough to invite me to come, and I held about three revivals for him. And and then one day when I was there, he said, you suppose you and your dad could come and do a revival? Both of you come, and you could trade off preaching and singing. I said, I'll check with Dad, and we put it together. And so Dad and I, we made plans to go to Richmond Southside Church of the Nazarene. And about three, four weeks ahead of the revival meeting date, we started getting cards in the mail from the members of that congregation. And they were saying things on those cards and in those letters. We're looking forward to revival. We can hardly wait for your arrival. We're believing that God is going to do something incredible during those days of revival. We're praying for you. We're believing God for a great move of the Spirit in our church. Well, when you start getting letters like that and cards like that from a congregation where you're going to be in ministry, you can hardly wait to get there, just trying to whet your appetite. And we arrived, started the meeting on Wednesday night, and Dad preached, and I sang. And, and there, was a, there was some response, as I recall, to Dad's sermon, but nothing really out of the ordinary. And then Thursday night I preached, and Dad sang. And again, there was some response, moved to the place of prayer, and it was good. Didn't minimize that. That was good, but nothing out of the ordinary. And then Friday came, Dad preached, I sang, and, and then again, some folks came forward and found help around the altar. But I knew this church. I'd been there enough to know they were not going to be satisfied with just a few sermons and a few songs and a few people coming to the altar. They wanted a break from God. They wanted the Spirit of God to divinely interrupt anything that was going on. Saturday night of that revival meeting, it's my time to preach. Dad had sung his song. I stood behind the pulpit. I took my Bible. I read the text, John 3, 16. The Bible in miniature. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'd no more than finished quoting the verse until a young adult man stood up on to his feet right here about the third row. And I looked down at him and he said, Excuse me, Lane. Could I say something? I said, You take your liberty in the Lord. And he kind of turned halfway and faced the congregation. Might have been 300 people there that night. And this is what he said. He said, We've not seen the revival we've been praying to see this week. And he said, it's not Lane's fault. It's not his dad's fault. He said, as a matter of fact, I'll assume partial responsibility. 
He said, for instance, tonight, I wanted to get to the church for the pre-service prayer meeting. He said, my wife just didn't get her ducks in a row. She was late getting ready to leave for church. And he said, I got up sick with her. And he said, by the time she was ready and we were leaving the house, we were arguing with one another. He said, we argued all the way to church. And he said, by the time we got to church, we weren't speaking to one another. And we we came in the sanctuary, we came down here and took our seats, angry at one another. He said, the enemy had already defeated us before we ever got here. I closed my Bible, and I looked at that young man, and I said, Sir, I want you to take your wife by the hand, and I want you and her to come to this altar. And whatever you need to do to defeat the enemy, and to do what you need to do regarding what's been going on, you come and do it. He took her by the hand, and they came to the altar. I said, we're going to defeat the enemy on our turf tonight. And they began to pray. I turned to that congregation and I said, maybe there are others here in this service tonight. Maybe some husbands and wives who've been having difficulty in your marriages. Maybe there's some families. There's a lot of strife in your family. And maybe you need to do as this couple has done. Maybe you need to come. I wasn't quite prepared for what I saw happen next because almost in mass, the greater majority of that congregation stepped out from their seats and they made their way to the altar. It was three and four deep around that place of prayer. The Spirit of God came, fell on that place. That service lasted till 10 o'clock and that spirit of of brokenness bled over into the Sunday morning worship service. They came to me and dad said, can you stay with us? We don't want to close the revival. This is what we've been praying for. And that revival was extended an extra three days. Seventy people were saved during that revival. Seventy people joined the church. Why? Because there's a young man over here. He said, I'm not happy with what's going on in my life. See, we've got to have a divine discontentment. I believe that God wants to do great things in our lives but we've got to become divinely discontented and not become satisfied with where we are we've got to be like the little boy who around the turn of the 20th century he had been to Sunday school his Sunday school teacher had given him a gospel track and the title of the gospel track was faith in God and he's riding home from Sunday school in an open air trolley car Reading the gospel track, faith in God, that his Sunday school teacher had given to him. And while he's reading the gospel track, riding along in the open air trolley, the wind comes up and blows the track out of his hand. And he exclaims, stop the trolley! I've lost my faith in God! The woman sitting next to him said, isn't that cute? The man sitting next to her said, cute? At least he's got enough sense to know when he's lost his faith in God. He said, many of us adults don't even realize that we need to stop and see if we even have faith in God. There must be a divine discontentment. If there are seeds of divine discontentment in your life tonight, you've got to cultivate them. You've got to water them. You've got to fertilize them. 
You've got to do it with prayer. You've got to do it with an honest and open heart, a transparency that gets beyond the pretense. And listen tonight, if there are seeds of divine discontent in your life, I I beseech you, brother, uh, don't leave this tabernacle uh, if you're dissatisfied with the sin that's in your life. God has something that He can do for the sin in your life. Don't leave here tonight if you're in a in a state spiritually where you believe you're saved, but there's no power and there's no purity in your life. Don't leave here because God has got what you need to take care of that. Don't leave here tonight if you're backslidden because as we heard last night, God loves the backslider. He's married to the backslider. So don't leave here. If you're dissatisfied with where you are spiritually, you must have a divine discontentment that causes the thumb to be put in your back to where you come and allow God to do whatever is necessary, your hands taken off, and He does His work inside of you. A divine discontentment. Shemgar was not only possessed of a divine discontentment when I read this verse, another thing that leaps off the page at me is that he was a man of great faith. After Ehud came Shemgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600. Can you picture this? 600 Philistines with an ox gun. It doesn't take a whole lot of faith on my part to look at my good friend, Gary Bond, and say, Gary, I appreciate you. Appreciate how God's used you across the years. I've worked with you before, and I've seen how God's worked through your music and through your preaching, and lives have been changed because of the way God's used you. And I just want to tell you, I really believe in you, Gary. I believe in how God's using you. And you know what? I could say that, and I would say it, and I believe it, and I would believe every word is true. But it doesn't take an ounce of faith for me to say that about him. I could look at my friend Brian Arner, say, Brian... I hate you. You just sing so much better than I could ever sing. No, you know what I mean. I love you and I love your ministry. I love what the places you go, how God uses you and the way he uses you and the places he uses you, places I'll never go. I believe that God's going to use you mightily for the kingdom and he is using you mightily for the kingdom. And I, I would mean every word of that, every word of that. But it doesn't take any faith for me to say that about you. I could look at our brother pastor from Wadsworth, First Church of the Nazarene, and I could say, I believe in you. I, I believe you've, you've been there 10 years, and God's used you, and lives have been changed because of you, and I thank you for that ministry, and I believe God's going to continue to use you. It doesn't take a bit of faith for me to say that about you. I could look at Dr. James Phillips over here, and I could say, Dr. Phillips, the people that you've ministered to through your medical profession, God's used you. And I thank you for the ways used you for me and my family. And I believe God will continue to use It doesn't take a bit of faith for me to say that about these wonderful people. But it takes great faith to stand in front of a mirror and say, I believe God can use me. Shemgar was a farmer. 
And he expressed his faith here by what he did. He said, I believe that God can use me. Try and picture what's going on. The Philistines, on regular patrol, they're just out canvassing the area. And they're randomly selecting farms, homes, families, putting them to death, burning their houses to the ground, raping the women, and laughing about it. It was a horrible time in the life of the children of Israel. And one day Shamgar is out plowing ground. And as he's plowing ground with his oxen, he looks up there on the brow of the hill and he sees a contingency of Philistine soldiers. I can't prove this scripturally, but I cannot help but wonder. When he saw them, he thought, well, I wonder which house, which neighbor they're going to pillage and plunder today. And he just keeps plowing. And he looks up a second time. And instead of of turning and riding off in a different direction, those soldiers begin to ride toward his place. And all of a sudden, Shamgar realizes that they're coming to his farm. And they're going to do harm to his family. And he's got a decision to make. What's he going to do? He could have made excuses. He could have said, hey, I'm a farmer, not a fighter. I don't have any weapons. All I've got is this ox goad. They've got spears and swords. But evidently, Shamgar wasn't very good at making excuses. And I see Shamgar leave those oxen standing out there in that new ground where he's been plowing with ox goad in hand. You ever seen an ox goad? Ox goad's about three feet long. It's made out of one piece of wood, and at the end of one piece of that wood, it looks like the ball of your hip. It's about that big around. And then it tapers off to a little pointed end down here, about that long. You don't grab it by the ball end and use the pointy end to prod the oxen. That might cut the hide of the oxen, and infection might get in, and the oxen might die. So they grab it with the pointed end and they prod them with the blunt end. That's how they do it. Still do it in Africa. I see Shamgar heading down toward his little house where his wife is and the kids are. And I see him as he looks back over his shoulder and he sees those Philistines heading toward his house. And he races down and he says, Miss Shamgar, Miss Shamgar, come here. I've got, I've got to tell you something. I want you to take those little Shamgars and I want you to take them out behind the house. You know that cave that we carved into the wall back there and that rock back there? Uh, I want you to put yourself and those kids back up in that, pull the bush back over in front of it uh, because I've got something to do. Uh, the Philistines are coming uh, and I may die in the next few minutes, but I'll die doing what I know is right. Uh, and if, if I don't come back for you, stay there uh, until you don't hear anything anymore. Uh, I've got business to do. Uh, and he went out there and he took that 
Oxgoda, and the power of God came on Shemgar. I'd have liked to have been there. I'd have liked to see him do this. It's, a, it's an amazing feat. I mean, he takes an old blunt in Oxgoda, and I see that first Philistine soldier come riding toward him, and he just takes one great gigantic sweeping swing at him, knocks him clear of that horse and kills him in an instant. And then he turns around and hits another one that way, and then backhands another one that way, hits another one this way. And before you know it, 600 Philistines are dead on the ground. It's an amazing sight. Amazing sight. After Ehud came, Shemgar, son of Anath, struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He saved Israel. You say, Lane, that's a neat story. Never heard about Shamgar before. But what's it got to do with me? Here's what it's got to do with you and me. I'll go through them quickly. I'll go through them quickly. First thing. Get dissatisfied with yourself. Be willing to take inventory of where you are spiritually. Edmund Burke said, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil evil, is for good men to do nothing. So take inventory of your own life. Get dissatisfied with yourself. There's a man who lives in Wilmore, Kentucky today in one room in the home of his niece. He's about 95 years old. He has to use oxygen, I found out today. His name is Dr. Dennis Kinlaw. One of the great minds of the holiness movement. One day... Just a year or so ago, maybe a couple of years now, the story is told that his niece walked by Dr. Kinlaw's room and saw her uncle with his head in his hands at his desk, weeping over his Bible. And she looked at him and said, Uncle Dennis, what's the matter? And Dennis Kinlaw, former president of Asbury University, and Asbury Theological Seminary, knows Hebrew and can speak it, taught it, knows the Bible perhaps better than anyone you would ever meet, with head in hands weeping, he spoke to his niece and said, God just showed me something I've never seen before. 94, 95 years old, never satisfied, always seeking, always searching, the consummate learner, constantly open to what God would have to say to him and willing to respond. What's this got to do with us? What's Shamgar got to do with us? Number two, go out on a limb. Go out on a limb. The Apostle Paul, he said that we are to press toward the mark for the prize of the calling of God 
in Christ Jesus. Exercise your faith. Number three, repent thoroughly. I believe that the altar is just not a place for repentance for the unsaved. It's a place where some of we Christians need to come and repent of Laodicea attitude of our lukewarmness. We need to repent of our inactivity. We need to repent of our unwillingness to become committed to the things of God. Repent thoroughly. Number four, pray through. When's the last time you really prayed through on anything? Somebody said we get people to the altar and we expect them to pray through over something in five minutes that's been a problem for 50 years. When will we pray through and get through to the throne of God over the issues that hinder us spiritually? Number five. What's this got to do with us? Number five. Make restitution. Oh, there's a word that's fallen on hard times. Make restitution. Make things right that should be made right. When God lays it upon your heart, when the Holy Spirit directs you, be willing to do what's necessary to make things right. That same revival I mentioned earlier at Richmond, Virginia. People had prayed that night. It was going on 10 o'clock. And people just begin to stand and spontaneously give testimony to what God had done. It was beautiful. It was just a blessed time. And then a man who was not at the altar, sitting over here, he stood up. And I don't know why, but he just began to talk. And it really wasn't relevant to what was going on. He was just disconnected to all of this. But yet I guess he saw it as an opportunity to say something, and so he was going to say it. And he took about 10 minutes to say it. And as he was talking and saying whatever he was saying, and I don't even remember what he was saying, but as he was doing that, I just felt the Spirit of God begin to lift from that service. And I made up my mind as soon as he was done. I'm going to admonish the people to go home and continue praying. And let's come back tomorrow morning and expect God to do great things tomorrow morning. And, and I'd made up my mind to do that. And as soon as he finished... I was about to pronounce the benediction. And a lady, a mother, who had been at the altar, she was about right here, she stood up and she began to speak. And as soon as she opened her mouth, that spirit that had departed returned. Just settled right back down on that group of people. This is what she said. This last week, my son and I had an argument She said, my son and I, we just don't seem to be able to get along. We're always arguing with one another. And it gets loud. And it gets ugly. And this week in the kitchen, we were arguing with one another. And just all of a sudden, he stopped. And he looked at me and said, Mom, you never tell me you love me anymore. You tell my younger brother and my younger sister you love them, but you don't tell me you love me anymore. And she said he was right. It's easy for me to tell my younger children that I love them. But because he's a teenager and we're just never seemingly on the same page and we argue and butt heads over so much, it was hard for me to look him in the eye and tell him that I love him. 
And then I saw her do it. She turned and looked back across the congregation. And she called his name. Todd, where are you? I saw a young man stand up back there in the back. And as though it was just her and her son, she said, Todd, I'm so sorry. Because I do love you. I do love you. He didn't run, but he came close to it. He came down that aisle of that church, threw his arms around his mom. We didn't have any trouble having a revival. When you have that kind of spirit of brokenness and honesty before God, I wonder what would happen in our churches if some professing Christians would go to other professing Christians and say, you know, I was wrong about that. I didn't talk quite right. I, I had a bad attitude about that. I, I said that with an edge to it, and I, I'm sorry about that. That wasn't Christ-like. I wonder what would happen in our churches if the people of God would just make some restitution. What's this got to do with us? Reopen your Bible and obey it. There's never been a time, I don't believe, in my life as a Christian and as a preacher when we have seen so much biblical illiteracy in the church. Leonard Sweet made the statement at a conference I was at this past January in front of a large group of preachers, he said, one of the problems in our churches today is that we have verse-itis. We just know a few verses, but we don't know the depth of the Scripture. I'm going to say this because I can, and it's a camp meeting, but not to attack you, but just to make you think a moment. You realize there are probably people in your church there might even be some people right here tonight who profess to be Christian, think they're going to heaven, believe they are. It's not my place to question that. Who don't tithe. The basic, one of the basic fundamental elements of Christianity, and they don't tithe. They want the grace of God. They want what God offers them. But when it comes to one of those basic disciplines of tithing, they just, for whatever reason, they just dismiss that like they can take Christianity piecemeal. What's this got to do with us? Open your Bible. Obey it. Be serious-minded. Be hungry after righteousness. Get to work. Be available. My wife is not with us. She's an incredible lady. I want to tell you this and I'll be done. We've been married 19 years. We got married in 1997. We have a wonderful story of how God put us together after very difficult times in our lives. I'm not here to tell that story tonight, but it's a beautiful story of God's grace and Timing and providence. In 1999, I went back in, on the road. I'd had to come off the road due to family circumstances. And I'd been pastoring a church, and, and the Lord opened the door for me to go back into evangelism, what I believe He called me to whenever He called me to preach when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. 
And so my wife, being the wonderful support that she is, she got a job. She had always been, always been a church secretary. And so she got a job there in Greensboro, where we lived at the time, North Carolina. And she got a job at a Moravian church as church secretary. And then I started traveling in 1999. And I'd go out on Saturday, come back in on Sun, uh, Thursday, go out on Saturday, come back in on Thursday. And so it went on like that, January all the way through the month of November. And I came in from a meeting in November of 1999. And she met me at the door, she always did, and embraced me, kissed me, welcomed me home. And then she just kind of pushed me back at arm's length. And she said, I love you, Lane Loman. I believe in what you're doing. I'm going to support your ministry any way I can. But I didn't move down here from Bedford, Indiana. Leave my aging mother and father, my son and my grandson, my job, my friends, my church. I didn't leave all of that to move down here to stay here at this house while you travel all over the country every week without me. Starting January the 1st, 2000, I'm going to travel with you. Now you figure out the details. <laughs> and I did. Starting January 1990, the year 2000, she started traveling with me. And invariably, in those days, as it always has been seemingly in evangelism, um, you get to a church and you've got a wife with you. First question that's asked your wife, do you play the piano? <laughs> and when we'd get there, they'd ask my wife that question, do you play the piano? And my wife would say, well, no, I don't. Well, do you sing? No, no. And then they would say, well, what do you do? <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't say it just directly. It was almost as if they were saying, why did we pay your way? And I would try to diffuse the situation. I, I would say, well, no, she works behind the scenes. She, she takes care of the office work and the product reproduction. She does so much behind the scenes that people don't see. see and she does, she does give me a tremendous back rub every night in the motel. I mean, she just is a necessary part of what I do. <laughs> 2001. We're riding in the car and... I'm singing the old standard, Oh Come Angel Band, trying to learn it and add it to my repertoire of songs. She started singing with me. And I glanced at her and I said, Hey, that sounds good. Sounded like my mom a little bit. She had kind of a Chuck Wagon Gang lady's voice. Remember Chuck Wagon Gang? Kind of that country twang. And I said, That sounds pretty good. Why don't you learn this song and sing it with me? She said, oh, no. I said, yes, this is going to be good. We'll sing together. She said, no, I'm a car singer. <laughs> I didn't press the issue. We had a revival at our church where we were on staff, evangelist in residence at Elon College, Powerline Church of the Nazarene, Elon, North Carolina. Had a revival. And God came in that revival. Have you ever seen God come in a revival? Kind of like that Richmond revival. God came. Early service at our church that morning. People began to spontaneously come to the altar. I mean, they were lined at the altar two and three deep. Our pastor, Dr. Tim Taylor, he got his wife's attention and said, Kathy, 
Go out there and tell those people waiting for second service to get in here. They need to see this. They need to experience this. People came in and began to line up around the walls of the sanctuary as God began to move in the hearts and lives of people. And just out of the corner of my eye, standing over here to this side, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw my wife Gretchen get up from where she was sitting, and she made her way to the altar. I had a great morning worship service. When all was said and done, we got in our car, started to drive back up to Greensboro about 25 minutes away. And, and as we drove along, I looked at my wife and I said, Honey, you went to the altar this morning. I saw you go and uh, it's none of my business, but is there anything I can help you pray about? And she looked at me and she said, Lane, I went to the altar this morning to ask God, first of all, to forgive me. Forgive me for my indifference, for my unwillingness. And she said, I told him if he would forgive me, and he did, then I would do anything he wanted me to do. I'd go anywhere he wanted me to go. Anytime he wanted me to go. She said, I told him I'd do anything, even if it meant singing with my husband. And I said, all right. Stratton, Ohio, not far from here. February 2001, Church of the Nazarene. Little old tiny church tucked in that little community there next to the river. Cold, snow's blowing. Sunday night on our way to church, I said, why don't you sing the song with me tonight? You've learned it. We've rehearsed it. You could sing it with me, Oh Come Angel Band. She said, no, I'm not ready. I didn't press it. Monday night, small church, maybe 25, would be a big crowd, maybe 30. Monday night, I said, what about tonight? No, 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 no. I'm just not ready. Tuesday night on our way to church, I said, honey, it's snowing. Nobody's going to be there. <laughs> I said, tonight would be a good night. She said, all right. I'll do it tonight. And so that night in that little church of the Nazarene in Stratton, Ohio, about 15 people. I said, folks, tonight, you're going to see something that's never been seen before. <laughs> My wife has never sung publicly. And tonight she's going to join me on the platform and we're going to sing together. And my wife came to the platform and I handed her her microphone. She took it with her left hand and reached out with her right hand and instinctively took hold of my left hand and held on for dear life. <laughs> and I cued the soundtrack and we sang, Oh Come Angel Band. I could feel the tremor in her body as she sang that song with me. There was a little quiver in her voice from time to time from nervousness, but she did fine. And after the service was over, one of the charter members of that little church, Bud Flanagan, walked up to Gretchen and said, Oh, Gretchen, that was so good tonight. You're going to have to sing again tomorrow night. She said, I can't because that's the only one I know. <laughs> and he said, Well, just sing that one again. And we did. And she's been singing with me ever since. If she was telling the story tonight, she would tell you this. 
I know I'm not the best singer in the world. But I believe that when the words leave my lips, by the time they get to your ear, God does something with them. If she were telling the story tonight, she would tell you this. God doesn't often ask us to do that, which is easy. Because if we just did that, which was easy, there would be no faith involved. And that's why I have to trust and rely upon him every time I stand. And every time I do this with my husband. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath. He struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goat. He saved Israel. Our Father, thank you so much for Shamgar. Thank you for what we learned from him. He was possessed of a divine discontentment. He was a man of great faith. And you used him to liberate the people of Israel. And it proves to me that you can use us, any of us, anyone among us, young, old, in between. Quite honestly, I don't even know how to give an invitation after this message. I, but I'm going to ask you to just respond to the truth tonight. If God spoke to you about anything in your life, I'm going to invite you to come. Adults, young people. Are you satisfied where you are spiritually? Can you testify to any new thing happening in your life tonight? Just a question, not a judgment, just asking a question. Are you living in total obedience to what you understand the Word of God to say? You're walking in all the light that you have? Just a question. Sing a verse of that for us, would you, Brian? Altar's open. We're not very long.
Let's stand and sing it together. And obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust. What about fellowship? Last one. Fellowships we we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side in the way what he says we will do where he sends we will go never fear only trust and obey Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the sentiment of that song. Then in fellowship sweet, we sit at your feet. I like that line that says that we will go wherever you send us. We'll do whatever you tell us. Pray for these precious young people. They've been so responsive this week. And I thank you for their heart hunger for you. And I pray that you would meet the need. I thank you for this precious young lady that's here. She grew up on this campground. We know her family. And I pray that whatever brought her to this place of prayer, you would meet that need for her tonight. Father, I pray that in these closing hours of camp, we think about that final service tomorrow night. Of course, the Bible said in the morning, but that final service tomorrow night, we remember that we will never again gather just like that. And I pray that you would come, Spirit of the living God, and prepare and draw, equip, anoint, do whatever is necessary to accomplish everything that needs to be accomplished in that service tomorrow night. Be with Gary and Brian as they prepare. Bless this congregation. Thank you for every person that's driven into the camp and for all of those who are staying on the camp. Bless we pray as we walk out of this place. May we be aware of your voice and attentive to it and respond in obedience to whatever you say. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight.